Hello and welcome to another edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. I'm Lee Carlo here with Jeremy Fisk and Chapin Hemingway. Second podcast in a week's time. Today we're going to be discussing the new film that is both in theaters and on HBO Max, Judas and the Black Messiah, directed by Shaka King, starring Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield. Uh, I'm not sure what else we'll have to discuss. I would like to hear a little bit from you guys on how you feel about how you feel the HBO Max rollout is going. Um, this is a, a pretty significant launch, and what you think maybe this film would have done in theaters versus how it's doing on HBO Max. We'll see if we have time to get to that. Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois Black Panther Party. Repeat after me. Looking at 18 months for the stolen car, five years for impersonating a federal officer, or you can go home. The Black Panthers are forming a rainbow coalition of oppressed brothers and sisters of every color. Their aim is to sow hatred and inspire terror. I will learn all that I can. I will learn. These ain't no terrorists. You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder a liberation. You can murder a revolutionary, but you can't murder a revolution. And you can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder freedom. Okay, so guys, Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, I was thinking about how to open this podcast, and I very quickly realized that it is certainly well documented uh, my feelings towards biopics. And I think, you know, usually much of my ire is directed towards the birth to death biopic, uh, which Judas and the Black Messiah is not one of. But it does cover uh, the life of both Fred Hampton, the uh, leader of a uh, chapter of the Black Panther Party, and Bill O'Neill, who was an informant for the FBI uh, and befriended and worked with Fred Hampton uh, during a, a certain period of in the 60s. Is that right? Um, yeah. Uh, during In the 60s, during the Civil Rights Movement. And... I wanted to kind of get a feeling from you guys in terms of what type of biopic this is and more specifically who you think this movie is about because we'll get into whether or not this, you know, follows the biopic formula or how it departs from it. But one obvious departure is that it is not specifically about just Fred Hampton or just Bill O'Neill. Uh, it certainly covers uh, the perspectives of both of these characters. And I'm curious, 
you know, just what who you think this movie is about, and do you feel like this movie and the director Shaka King balanced that well enough to work as a, as a biopic or just a movie in general? I I think it's about Lakeith Stanfield's character. It, you know, into sort of if if you want a, an immediate basic answer, I think it's about Bill O'Neill. Um, and I don't know, but I don't know if this is a biopic. I mean. Fred Hampton had a sort of tragically short life, as we know from the end of this movie. Spoiler alert. Um, and I think it's just kind of about this scenario. And 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 uh, I sent you guys a little piece from the New York Times that were interview of Shaka, Shaka King. And I don't know if you guys had a chance to read that or not. But uh, the guy, the director cited The Departed as an influence on this film, at least structurally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the like. The Departed isn't about anybody. It's a, a real person. I guess it's kind of about um, uh, what's his name that Johnny Whitey, Depp played, Whitey Bulger. Whitey Bulger. But uh, you know, we wouldn't any we wouldn't call that a biopic. I think this is just about the events, the the this like time period. And but if it is about anybody, you know, we open in a sort of clever um, sort of editing technique we open with Lakeith Stanfield Lakeith Stanfield playing Bill O'Neill and then we close and get the answer to the question we were left hanging with uh for from footage from the real Bill O'Neill and um you know we've talked a little bit about that context and this film certainly opens with a montage of real footage and we've talked about the context of using real footage in films like um uh Black Klansman for example and I think it's used pretty effectively here and i uh, i don't know does that answer your question at all yeah jeremy what do you think i don't think this is a biopic i don't think it's any more a biopic than like the trial of the chicago seven was right i think it's just based on a true story and it happens to um target in on less characters than maybe the uh trial of the chicago seven um, but really, I don't think there's any part of this that is necessarily a biopic. It just sort of gives us a slice of each of these gentlemen's life. This is more in terms of what Chapin said, and I noticed it immediately watching it. This is more of a departed, a, a, a wannabe, and I don't want to say that in a negative way, but it, it definitely is, a, is trying to be the departed a bit mm-hmm. and clearly heavily influenced by a, a sort of cat and mouse uh, well, not good guys and bad guys, because everything's a shade of gray here, as it should be. But um, you know, uh, police and informants and rats—that's um, the movie that this is trying to be. While at the same tr- time trying to balance um, a socially important period of our history, which I think kind of weighs it down to be honest because unlike the departed that can just sort of have fun with that cat and mouse game this has to give reverence to the the time period it's portraying and the people it's portraying so it has that added weight to it that may have overall um distracted from its overall effectiveness so i agree just in terms of like how this movie is classified 
in comparison to The Departed. It leans more towards that. But I do think it, it falls kind of into the biopic formula because it falls prey to some of the issues I have with biopics, oddly. And while it is not a birth-to-death movie, it does focus in on a specific period of time, which is a step in the right direction. I think that's something important that good biopics do. It still seemed to me to have a little bit of a challenge figuring out exactly what it wanted to be about, what story it was telling beyond just the basic surface level one, Chapin, that you pointed out with just kind of Bill O'Neill going in as an inf- as an informant for the uh, FBI infiltrating the Black Panther Party. I I struggled to find exactly what this movie was about, and that is what happens in biopics. It tries to paint a broad picture of who characters are. It likes to show certain events that happen to them, and whether or not those events connect to each other or lead to anything in particular is often what leaves me hanging with movies like... Uh, that are with biopics in general, but in this movie, I felt like that was happening a little bit. And I don't want to just say I don't like biopics because those things are in them, or I don't like those things because they're in biopics, but I found that connection. So that's why I kind of found this to be a bit of a biopic. It, it sort of followed that formula. Um, well, I think, I think where you had the problem isn't necessarily in that, it, it, it leads you to think it's a biopic. I think the problem comes in that, unlike in The Departed, where you had this adversarial, adversarial, yeah, adversarial uh, <laughs> thing between Matt Damon and and Leonardo DiCaprio, you didn't have this here. Like Bill O'Neill's character sort of gets thrown into a situation he does not want to be in. Um, uh, Fred Hampton isn't necessary. He's not even looking for a rat. There's no point, uh, mm-hmm. no point in this movie where he's ever trying to uh, sniff out Bill O'Neill's character and what he's really up to. Really, the only crux of uh, like issues that are going on are within Bill O'Neill's consciousness. Uh, really, yeah. and that's that's where the problem lies. Is there's really no fun sort of cat and mouse. It's everybody's sort of playing. Everybody's in this situation. Well, some against their will, like Bill O'Neill and Fred Hampton's got a goal that he's trying trying to, uh, you know, figure out where he has sort of blinders on to everything. Yeah, it seems else. separate. I'm I'm really glad. So I've been I've sort of I've I've watched this movie twice and I've been searching for my big issue with it. And I think you just gave it to me. It's, it's this lack of, of tension throughout because Mm -hmm. Fred Hampton is not looking for a rat that, that piece is not, is not, uh, uh, focused on throughout the movie. So the tension in the movie is on a scene by scene basis, a shootout at the, at the headquarters, uh, you know, of the, the conversations that Bill O'Neill has with, with Roy Mitchell, Jesse Plemons' character. And that abs- the absence of the cat and mouse that you're talking about, I'm so glad you pinpointed it because I, I just felt like a sigh of relief. I'm like, yes, that is it. There is what was missing because I have a bunch of things written down. I'm like, I think maybe this is it. But that is what was but, missing yeah, for me. Yeah, and I think the only, like, uh, like 
Lakeith Stanfield really had to portray sort of inner turmoil. That's what we have on a scene-to-scene basis because we know what he's dealing with, and that's interesting, but I I don't think it's enough to really draw draw you in, and I think it does leave an audience wondering why. What am I missing here? I want I want something more because the story is obviously very interesting, and the performances, which we'll get into, especially for some of these guys, is are really good. But it didn't like even Jesse Plemons' character, who plays Roy Mitchell, who's an FBI agent, like him and. Lakeith Stanfield's character they're almost friends I mean they're not really enemies they're sort of takes a little turn but nothing ever the tone of those scenes was tough I felt like so there's never that it's really more of an abstract um concept of uh, of the Panthers versus the police. It's not abstract, but that's a, a. I guess the word I'm looking for is like something. It's bigger. It's above them. It's 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 more of a societal um, issue, and that's harder to get behind in a movie when you have really good characters and you want to, you want to feel the tension within within them. Yeah, I I, I <clears throat> confessed to you guys when we were finished the podcast last night that I spent. I watched this in, unfortunately, in four pieces, four sittings. And I think that was a lot to do with what was just going on in my life at the time. But, but also, I had a little bit trouble kind of getting into this, you know. And I think that that was what was sort of remarkable mm-hmm. about Nomadland, you know. I think you know you you put Judas and the Black Messiah and the way it was yeah, directed, but... which I'd like to talk about, and and Nomadland next to each other. I'm going to be a lot more interested in Judas and the Black Messiah. But uh, you know, Nomadland, I I barely looked at the running time. I barely, I didn't check my watch once. And this film okay. took a while to get through. It was a little, it dragged a little bit. I mean, I do want to say that I, I think this film was sort of beautifully directed in a way, just on a scene by scene basis. I think all the performances Agreed. are very, very good. It's beautifully shot. I mean, I think it's, this movie kind of looks like an old Scorsese movie. It kind of reminds me of Goodfellas a little bit, the way it looks, the camera movement, um, the mise-en-scene a little bit, the, the set decoration and, all those elements really work. And, and, and like, I, I mean, even in the sense that like, you know, we love the departed and, and whatever Sh- uh, Shaka, what's his name? Shaka King, Shaka King was yep. going for here. Like the shootouts are really well choreographed and filmed and, and they're exciting. And I think, um, but there was just, there was just, just a something missing that, that kept me from really getting into this movie. And, I don't know. I, maybe you identified it. Maybe, like there isn't a, there isn't like a. You feel the tension in Lakeith Stanfield's character. You feel his, but there is. There never seems to be an actual threat that he's going to be smoked out. You never see any, right? Uh, anything. He's the one was, that keeps bringing it up. Yeah. <laughs> dude, chill. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's like, there's a rat in this room. Everybody's like, yeah. dude, we're just trying to have some breakfast. Yeah. Can I? But can I? A rat. Re- make a strange comparison and this is not the the movies themselves are not comparable in any way but i felt like this was a little bit of this year's ford versus ferrari it's an entertaining movie that's mostly well made with two at least two dynamic performances but ultimately just missing too many pieces to really be great and i just i felt similarly watching those two movies and 
I think that's I, I a mean, little me, uncharitable to this film, but I see what you're saying. Uh, how, so you think this is a better movie to, than Ford versus Ferrari? I don't know that if it's better, but I mean, I th- I think that like uh, Ford versus Ferrari, I mean, you're right. They're both sort of historical films and they tell well, a semi-biographical story. I but don't even want to get hung up on that part of it. Like to me, just but, in terms of the... No, I understand broad that. experience. But to me, it was, I mean, I, I like that this film, I think this film gets a few extra points for me just because it's, it, it at least touches on somewhat relevant, controversial, you know, cultural uh, subjects, which, you know, I think Ford versus Ferrari had the advantage of not having to worry about all that stuff. Right. And, and, sure. and as a result, it can be this kind well, of fun romp. And that's something that we can talk about because look, Shaka King, I listened to an interview with him. He came across this story um, from the Lucas brothers in I think 2016 or 2017 and really has been spending time in development and production on this movie ever since. So he knew what he was getting into. Uh, And yes, he, he gave himself an added piece to deal with by making a movie with such historical significance and uh, such a topical subject matter. But he did. So he has to make that work. And that has to be a significant part of the movie, and it has to work significantly with everything else. And, you know, that stuff throughout the movie, the significance of Fred Hampton, you know, I I really kind of thought I've been I've been waiting for like a significant movie focused specifically on the Black Panthers. There's always a Black Panther character or a chapter that shows up in a movie, but there's never really been one that I can think of about the Black Panthers. And it was interesting to see like his outlook on life. He's a socialist. You know, he really kind of wants the best for everybody and he wants to you know do whatever he can, including if it means laying down his own life for it. He works to. Uh, work together with other organizations. The Crowns is one of them. Um, it, this kind of strange, I don't remember what they were called, but this group of like white Southerners that hang a Confederate flag behind them but are in support of the Black Panthers. Uh, he joins with them to create the, yeah, that this coalition. Seemed, that was a little too convenient. But my point is like that stuff is in the movie, but it all felt separate. It all felt like that was there because that's part of the time period it has to be there it's about the black panthers but it didn't connect with everything else that was going on also in that interview he talks about the real bill o'neill and who he was and he points out that he was an opportunist he was someone who wants to make money he even makes a comparison saying that if he was you know uh, a white man he would have been a donald trump type figure and I was thinking, I was like, man, I really wish that stuff was in the movie. <laughs> because yeah, I don't, I don't see that for a second. This, this character, this Bill O'Neill, was sim- at least sympathetic. Right. He, he felt I, torn about the stuff he was doing. And uh, I, exactly. I didn't see him as a complete opportunist. I saw him as somebody that didn't want to go to jail and yeah. uh, was maybe a little bit uh, and serving back to your himself. Point, if he's a little bit more of a villain, then you have a little bit more of a cat and mouse. You have a little bit more tension as a through line. You're able to cover all of these other aspects that take place in the movie. Well, there's a little but bit you have of that, that underlying he tension. He seems to enjoy the trappings of the, <clears throat> at least the little <laughs> dinners he that, has though. with Jesse. Blitz. Yeah, but you only know that because he's like, oh, how much money do you make? Are you, you know, you live in a nice life, and Look, you see I, him with a cigar and a drink. Like other than that, well, the, I, mean, I think Stanfield does so much with 
so little. I mean, not so little, but the, the, he does a lot more than what's on the page. I do. Th- I think what's you know he so the film concludes with uh, uh, telling us that this man killed himself the the night the documentary he you know his interview aired, which you know I think that obviously sort of suggests a lot of guilt. But I wonder if you know he, a certain amount of shame associated with what he did as well. And um, I think I think that's. To me, that's the movie I wanted to see. That was the most interesting part of this film was that that prologue. But that's not that, in the character we watch. I don't think. I, I think it is. I think I see that. I in the character we watch. I don't see it in a Donald Trump like character, but I saw it in the character we watched. Guilt and shame. You didn't see that. See, not not enough. I saw I saw Keith Stanfield try and try hard and succeed in many cases, but. I don't think that was on the page. I, I think that he did a lot more with this character than what he was given. And I give him a lot of credit for that because the, where we've well, all admitted there was something missing here from his character and his storyline. Right. But what do you mean by more than what was given if you don't think guilt and shame are part, not part of it? Like, what is because the more? Because it didn't, it didn't feel like it was earned. You see the look on his face that he feels... You know he's upset that he has to do something. Or he feels uh, ashamed isn't that, that he's. Gi- isn't that giving more than is written? That's what is... I mean. He does give more than than right. What is but written. you're saying you did. He you didn't see guilt or shame. No, you see it on his face, but you just don't see it. You don't see it earned throughout the movie. And that and that's back to your point. You don't really. There's no point where you see this. There's no point where you see these two characters going head to head you know you see him kind of just becoming a black panther and you see some confusion on his face at times he's at that rally when jesse plemons is there and you know he's kind of shaken and it's a really impressive moment of silence in his performance but you don't ever really just you just don't have a I don't know how to. I don't think I feel like I'm it's articulating like, myself well, but I, I, part, I don't know if this is entirely true, but it's partly like watching The Godfather if they followed Fredo around more. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, if, that's a good point. If it was Fredo and Michael, they don't and, give him any reason to feel. I mean, I guess he feels the that way in, in the sense, like, but you, you, I don't think you ever. There isn't that moment which you anticipate will come where he kind of falls for Fred Hampton. Yeah, it doesn't really happen. And the scenes where he is, you know, acting, he's wearing a he's wearing a wire and he's talking about blowing up a, a police station or something like that. And he's basically trying to get Fred Hampton to go along with it. And then he gets in the car, you see him take the wire off and you're like, and they even have a line. Uh, Jesse Plemons has a line that this guy is an incredible actor. <laughs> like how <laughs> he does not like He's either well, isn't he saying that sarcastically in that he saw him Exactly. Yeah, he is yeah. saying it sarcastically, but in that scene he was in fact trying to get uh Fred Hampton to admit something. He wasn't so radicalized himself that he wanted to blow something up, but it made it seem that way. So it's just a little bit scattered. It's a little bit all over the place in exactly what his motives are and the weight of what he is up against, the weight of the the prison time that he's about to face isn't contrasted by any threat from the Black Panthers except for this story he hears about another undercover person getting killed in New Haven but nobody suspects him like they just don't 
handle Honestly, that aspect well. The movie would have worked better if if they showed that death from the undercover. Like all they did was tell the story quickly and maybe flash back to that guy's face. It didn't feel threatening at all. There's never points well, where you really felt got, like he was ne- in trouble. Because that got real messy because it's it wasn't actually an informant. The informant was the one that actually killed somebody else and it it's just got a little sloppy and overly complicated. Can so, I ask you guys, do, what did you yeah. think of the FBI angle here? So I, I like what, you know, you described that scene, which again, like to my po- earlier point, I think was well executed with Jesse Plemons in the, in the church or wherever that was. And it was sort of haunting and scary, but it, that felt out of character for the agent that we were, that we yeah. had come to know. But um, I think, you know, a lot of the, uh, sometimes I, I, when I see these movies where you've got this sinister, you know, is if it, is it the CIA, the FBI, you know, the sinister government force behind all these actions. And, you know, this, this is true. I, I mean, this happened. So it's not as if it's not, um, uh, it's not like anybody made it up, but I, 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 I always feel like the, those are the time periods where these movies kind of jump the shark a little bit. Like you've got well, the guys yeah. in the smoky FBI office, you know, smoking cigars just, and drinking scotch and like laughing at things. And, and, you know, it's sort of a mustache twirling villain. Um, well, or like a villain where his makeup looks like it's fallen to yeah. his drink. Yeah, so what, I, I what never, is it with I really J. Edgar Hoover that, that yeah. they, they can't, can't get they him just, right on screen. They can't, but like, it was it, so distracting. Couldn't he just have been Martin Sheed? Why did we yeah. need to? Yeah. That was best. So what we're talking about is Martin Sheen plays Hoover in this, and his makeup is just completely distracting. You don't. It's not like you don't know it's Martin Sheen. It's not. Yeah, like somebody said him up somebody so, called his perform like him that he you couldn't tell it was him because the makeup was just listen to him talk. He doesn't change oh, his it's voice clearly or anything. Him with bad makeup on, it's <laughs> yeah. just a complete distraction. Takes you out of those scenes. I don't. Um, yeah, J. Edgar but, Hoover is apparently the the like hardest thing to capture on film i guess my, but to your point I, my, to your point shapen it's like i think he's trying to also add like so yeah there's this sort of mustache twirling villain in the fbi but then this movie's trying to add a level of complexity to it by having you know jesse Plemons' character get questioned by martin sheen's character yeah. and put him in a moral conundrum so it, it tries to add layers by doing that but i think it's a little too simple totally and, 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 and totally it, yep. it begs the question why why include that you know because because if you're not going to do it you know explore that with some real depth and subtlety and and really look into you know what it, what does it mean that this government agency conspired to kill this young man um why show it you know like i, I don't like i don't know what including hoover did for this movie it was sort of it was sort of strange and 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 i think like had other fbi fbi agent is a goofball too right and if you if you removed it you'd have 25 extra minutes to you know work on some of the things we're describing that maybe felt a little incomplete well um all right so let's let's go into these performances because i'm a little confused as to what we all think. I'm a little confused as to what I think about Lakeith Stanfield's Daniel performance. Daniel on loan from my, um, on my your production troupe. Yeah, yeah, from your acting troupe. Well, let's get, we'll get into him, but I, I want to I get into a little further um, Stanfield's performance because, Lee, you say he does a lot that's not there, which I agree with, 
but is it enough to overcome the uh the the downfalls of this character is he like wh- where does he stand in, with you guys uh, no he's not i mean here's the thing is it just to get it off the plate i i don't think this is a great movie i i think this is a fine movie but and and none of, and none of but none of the performances are 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 good enough as good as they are which i think are potentially fixie worthy none of them can save the problems with this movie they're they're separate but they are doing their best to make more out of what they're given and i think stanfield is the is the one that does that the most with every scene he is bringing so much more than i think what he was given to this character, whether it's the silent emotions, the dialogue, everything, the looks on his faces, I think was was well beyond the scope of what this movie was offering us. And for that I reason, agree. I liked watching his performance. I still never I'm with, I think I'm cared with enough about his character. It, I, I just don't think... He, he, it, yeah. He just had the... I mean, yeah. like, like uh, So I, I watched... When I start on my f- number viewing number one of four, I was like, "Oh wow! Like why? Why did we leave Lakeith Stanfield out of our our acting troupe discussion?" Um, and I think he is a fixie nominee. I think he is a, an extraordinary actor, and but I don't know that this. And I think he can like he really can play those kind of like dirtbag characters who you you sympathize and empathize with pretty well but i i i didn't buy a lot of his like his his angst in the second half of the film i didn't buy as much like i i I buy the like i think that's a script problem i agree i think it's and that's the problem is like we and we've reached these like precipices before where you know it's either or like, okay, this, you know, a really talented actor can take a bad script and sort of make something out of it or vice versa. A talented, a, a well-written script can, can be in the hands of maybe not the greatest actor and still work. But I think this was kind of a combination of both. And, and he certainly right. didn't have the material to work with, which is, you know, a huge issue for an actor. But I, I think he, I mean, I, I think he's a really good actor, but I think he is making very deliberate and interesting decisions with this with this movie i just don't get what the motivations behind those decisions are i feel like he's adding a layer that i'm not completely aware of like he's he, okay he, there's a backstory there there's a backstory there that he's decided as an actor and he's making and he's going forward and he's making interesting decisions but it's not helping me clarify his character in his character's role in this story. Yeah, that's a I great think that's way. a really yeah, and I and I agree. But what where it worked for me is I think it did clarify some things for me. I think the backstory that he gave himself and that he brought to his performance gave me a little bit of the either the angst or the the uh, shame that this character had that the movie wasn't giving us and. You know, I'm critical of that to a certain extent too. I, I you know, I th- Vice comes to mind when, as a your your performance is outweighing the movie, and this is not exactly the same thing. But if you're bringing something that the movie isn't following along with, then they're not going to work cohesively. 
So, I mean, I what, agree, what I good agree. is either one? Um, I don't agree in terms of vice, but I, that's exactly kind yeah. of what I'm saying. So I, I think I was just, I think I liked that he brought the backstory and that he made an effort to connect me back to the story, even if it wasn't working entirely. That That's what I really appreciated from his performance. On the other hand, I thought Daniel uh, Kalua was amazing. Yeah. In this, I thought he just like there was no reservations about what he was doing, about what Fred Hampton was doing, and he just went full force. And it's not just the imitation of the real guy, which of course is pretty accurate and and on point. It is his intensity when he's needs to be intense and his quiet uh, silence or mo- whatever when he needs that too. And I I thought he was just fantastic. Yeah, I, I, when you say that, I think of his body language too. Like he's got this. I mean, I don't know if he bulked up or gained some weight or something, but he, you know, he's got kind he, of a. Yeah, he definitely gained. I think. Well, it looks like he gained some weight. Um, but he's got this presence, and, you know, the manner, the you know, the speaking is probably the most obvious thing, really. But like, uh, which I thought you know, his voice was great, but also, like, um, the way he carries himself is different. Like I remember in get out he had this kind of like stiff awkwardness that that made me sort of appreciate his you know feeling like a like a black sheep amongst all these weird white people and um it was even different in widows when he was like smoother and and and, yeah. and more threatening and um but this film you know, he's he's just such like a complete actor in that sense. And like he's got these great eyes and you just you see everything there. And so does Lakeith Sample. I think that's what's interesting about watching these two actors work is there's so much done with their eyes. But also, yeah, he's just such a. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy you brought up those two movies, Chapin Widows and Get Out, because I, I think this is kind of the performance that we've been watching Kaluuya build towards. Right, you see little bits of everything he's done. That kind of smooth intensity, that arrogance of uh, sort of that he has in Widows is there. The likability, the vulnerability in Get Out is there. Like it's just, it, you see the strengths that we've seen before all culminating in this performance. And he he just like the, his screen presence is is very fitting for the character, but also just the the, the best part of this movie for sure. Yeah, and I, I have to say, Chapin, your uh, your your acting troupe guy uh, outdid my acting troupe guy, as I had to let uh, Plemons go for for this role. Right, uh, and I think he's fine. You fired sir. him? I didn't fire him. I just oh, let, him, let him. I let him do it. Go yeah. do the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think he is. He's fine in this film. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know well, what else I would have wanted. I, can I ask you, Jeremy, have, as a side, if if you if if you, if I had never seen any Jesse Plemons movie, what would you show me to be like? This is why that was my gotta, that was going to be my question. What it. is our favorite Plemons movie? That's, that's favorite a, Plemons performance? We all like him, but like what? That's, a, that's great. I I I, I want to say weirdly Breaking Bad. Well, that's TV and uh, not. A, I don't want to. I don't want to hear that show mentioned on this podcast again. So so tell me. Uh, I, I never got that far. I never saw him in. Breaking tell me a you movie. Never, you never. Oh man. Um. Hmm, what was game uh, night? He is good in that. Vice. He's also good in. He, he is, yeah, but, and, but he's think, good think, in all these things. He's always good. 
but I like, think it's really it's really kind of Breaking Bad and Fargo, which are both right. <laughs> I, I, I agree. But the thing it, is, that like he is good at he's like got that weird energy in Breaking Bad that's like very threatening in a weird sort of soft way. When he yeah. has that here too, a little bit. Yeah. But like, I I like Jesse Plemons, and I think like I don't know why. Maybe it's just because he's you know kind of chubby and but like he got like pegged as the next Philip Seymour Hoffman, but like no, he's not. That not good. yet. <laughs> like, so um, he is in the master. He's good in the master too. He, and he has as very little to as do, but he's very Philip good. Seymour yeah. Hoffman's son. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's why we pegged him as the next Philip Seymour Hoffman. But I also, at, on a side note, he was really cool at the Black Mass rap party, and we hung out. Sarah and, and I hung so out with cool. him for a while and drank with him, and he was talking about how lucky he was in his career and everything. That and he was, uh, yeah. I mean that's part of it. As I he's got younger than we are. Um, how about Dominique? Uh, what's her last name? Sitwell, fix it something. Where did I write Sitwell. it down? Sitwell, uh, Fishback. Fishback. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, she was great in this actually. I've never seen uh, her in anything. Yeah, she was. Uh, yeah, I don't know her at all, and she was. She was. I thought she was really good. She got better as the movie went too. I thought. Yeah, and she had to pretty much go up against... Um, well, two uh, Fixie winners. Yeah. And, or two Fixie nominees, I, sh- I mean, uh, and Kaluuya. But and she basically Anfield. had every scene with Kaluuya, so that's tough. That's tough, and she held her own. But, uh, how, so, the she's given the task of camera straight on her face in the climactic moment of the movie when... Fred Hampton is shot, and then the FBI guys in the background say, "Well, he's dead now." Uh, and she little, held little, it. She held little it while, piece I, of, while little I piece snickered. of exposition. Yeah, she didn't even laugh when they said she... that. So, um, I th- <laughs> I thought that was a powerful moment. I liked the decision to do it. I mean, it's a little bit that 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 idea of that the way to shoot that. I feel like is a little obvious at this point. That's not to discredit it. Um, I like that scene. But I liked it. I thought that was a good choice to do that and to hold on her because she had become a very kind of significant point in in that character's life and in the movie and kind of her conversations about, you know, their unborn child and how he is uh, making speeches about how he'll die for this cause that he believes in and she isn't necessarily on board with that, but she loves him. And I just thought that was a, a smart choice to focus on her when he was when he was assassinated and um yeah and she held that shot well that she the the look on her face i thought was yeah and it's not even just that shot i mean her whole argument of being part of the cause but but also realizing now she has to you know have a family with him and that and that sort of uh dichotomy that that she has to live through. I think she did a really good job of of expressing that. Yep. It's too bad it wasn't in a good movie. It was an okay movie. That's the thing about this. It's like it was in it was a is it was a decent movie, but one of the most disappointing of the year for me. I have to be. Yeah, honest. I would I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, had a really good trailer. It's a good subject matter. <clears throat> Great actors, but. And it wasn't just, as if this movie didn't have it, its share of drama and violence and amazing stuff that happened. It just it 
wasn't able to put it all together. Okay, Let, let's talk about that for a second, because, Chapin, you brought this up. This movie is not poorly directed. Shaka King does some good things here. But I could not help but thinking what this movie could have been in the hands of one of its producers, Ryan Coogler, mm-hmm. um, who, as we know, is a great director. He did Black Panther, but he also did Creed. He did uh, Fruitville Station. Um, and he came on as a producing partner for this movie, and I don't know how much he was a creative producer or if he just kind of stood back. But I, I think, on a, again, on a scene-by-scene basis, I think King does some good things as a director here, I love that that scene, that rally scene when you know the one that's in the trailer. I am a revolutionary. When he that shot when he walks up the stairs and the cameras behind him is a really imposing shot. This some really good stuff. But part of being a director, part of being a good director, is also putting all the pieces together. Yeah, and you could see him like trying to emulate more than create his own moment if that makes any sense Mm -hmm. he's like this you know he wants to emulate scorsese but i don't know if it always necessarily was the right decision at the right moment but it looks cool and it looks cool in a trailer um but i think there was maybe too much focus uh on on the movies he wanted it to be like yeah on what he like him wanting it to be the departed rather than what the movie sort of gave him it's interesting um sean bobbitt's the cinematographer and he yeah that's uh it's, has he's worked with steve mcqueen yeah, all, steve McQueen's um, all steve mcqueen's uh movies which are obviously always beautifully shot um i didn't put i, I just looked that up i i didn't really see the connection between the two but Okay, so a um, little bit of a disappointment coming off of <clears throat> our last pod, Nomadland. Um, anything else you guys have to add? No, I mean, I I, I want to give this movie more credit than the other sort of lackluster movie we... Two of the other lack, lackluster movies we saw, Ammonite and News of the World. Like, I think this is a better movie than that. But... Um, hmm. yeah, yeah, I would agree. <clears throat> I would agree, at least with Ammonite. I don't know. I can't. I haven't decided. I, again, I've watched this movie twice. It's it, it hasn't stuck with me. I think Chapin. It's it. I I felt very similar to you. Like my first viewing, it took it took two sittings only just because of circumstances. But like, circ like I, I don't care what the circumstances were. I never was going to shut Nomadland off, and right. that's not fair. Like that, but it's sometimes a movie just needs to have a little more to keep you going. I mean, I, I, I watched, uh, the wolf house today, which is like a 75 minute stop motion animated movie from Chile. And, and I am, I fast forwarded through most of that one. So, okay, so we'll skip, <laughs> skip that. That's a skip, but, um, well, I think this brings this will transition nicely into our next conversation. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know how I would, I would, uh, and I'm, you know, I know I'm trying to look at these things more from a consumer point of view but um i don't know how seeing this movie in the theater would affect my viewing obviously i would have sat there and watched it in one sitting um but if i were a filmmaker <laughs> i would be pissed to hear that somebody watched my movie in four parts right. you know? <laughs> right. um, but look like i've had so many thoughts about this and so i i wish i would have 
remembered more of what I had been thinking about. But like, I don't know. I don't think this movie would have been a huge hit in theaters. And like, uh, it would have been a, a huge flop. I don't think it would have been a flop. I don't think that's Under, true. Uh, but we have to put ourselves in normal circumstances. Like if it came out to the theater and everybody could go back to the theater safely No, no, that's, tomorrow, that's what I'm talking about. That's it, what I mean. Right. I think it would have been fine. Uh, but it's it's a big budget movie and, and you know relatively twenty twenty six million dollars, um, and I was thinking about this and Mank um, are about the same budget movie and I think this is a, this is a lot more accessible than Mank is but you know the and it did, yeah and it had a really good trailer these movies are gonna get more attention because of how they're available and the way the timing of this award season and all the hype is like um, Mank got a bunch of critic choice awards today. Is that, was that the right, is that the festival that came that so announced art? Isn't it art direct art directing critics awards or something? No, no, no. It was like a critics awards anyways. So, oh. so, you know, like as soon as you see that and you're able to sit down and watch it on Netflix instead of go to the theater, I think, I, I mean, ultimately I think there's going to be more eyes on both of these two movies than would have been if they were in theaters because it would have been, you know, we would still be waiting for Judas and the Black Messiah and Mank to come out uh, on a streaming platform or on video. And so I think ultimately like, and, and, and maybe where a question where we can take this conversation is, is that a, is that a better thing? Is it better? You know, we, we, we yelled at Nolan, uh, you yelled at Nolan, Jeremy, do you want people to see your movie? You know, is it better to have more people see your movie or is it is it better to have more to have fewer people see your movie in a more respectful way? Because, I again, I, I think you have to think about my circumstances um, in watching it in four, four, four or five parts and that, you know, a lot of people may turn off Mank or may turn off Judas and the Black Messiah if they're not interested in it. I mean, this is I think it's so much easier to do that. And so. You have to sort of weigh those two things when you consider these theatrical versus streaming releases. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I know personally, I think I would have liked this movie more had I watched it in the theater. I think this is one of those films where I would have been more encapsulated in the um, the the film. It just like the uh, the the shootout scenes and. Uh, the story itself and those rallies and all that stuff, I think I would have fallen for. There's that little bit of I think hook, line, and sinker I would have I would have bit into more sitting in a theater than sitting on my couch. I think you would have felt that way maybe walking out of the theater, but I think by the time you sat down to record this podcast, I think you would have had a lot of the same thoughts because I, I you know, I... I I like oscillated watching this movie. I was just like, oh man, like this is really good. But then I was just like, but what did that have to do with this? And like when you are in a theater environment, you you kind of at times will let yourself be absorbed. And as a result, you might enjoy something. And when you leave, you feel like you enjoyed it a lot. But then you got to think about it. When you're sitting at home, you might not be quite as absorbed. You might be, whether it's just a little, just distracted enough to, you know, realize that, you know, this movie's just not holding your attention and you start asking why. I think that's an excellent point. I was thinking about when I saw 
the hateful eight and it was a 70 millimeter presentation of the roadshow edition yep. and it had a program and it was this beautiful huge intermission yeah. wire w- widescreen i was like oh i'm so into this and even then i think i knew that i wasn't like crazy so crazy about the movie but it was like the experience of it was so spectacular that you know when you go home and watch it again on I, tv it's not as i got in trouble after seeing from lydia after seeing the hateful eight because uh we must not i don't remember where we were living at the time but we uh i met jeremy at coolidge and we saw it there but and yeah. of course i told lydia i was like oh i'm going going to the movie we were probably living at natick at the time so like a half hour from coolidge like going to see a movie and i got home like seven hours later because <laughs> it takes the hour round trip plus the three hour movie plus the half hour intermission <laughs> and like <laughs> where have you been all day yeah um yeah, it's weird because you obviously want more, as many eyeballs as you can on your film, but at the same time, you want people to see it in the way it was you intended to make it. Uh, but we're in weird circumstances now, so I, I would, I mean, I my argument to Nolan stands. I agree. I, I we are say, in weird circumstances, but it's possible that this could continue. And I'm, I'd be curious to see what you guys think about, you know, next year in a crowded award season, if a film like this were, you know, decided to be re- released on digital instead. I think I would try to go to the theater for a movie like this one. I would try sure, to make that I think, effort. But, but it's a whole lot easier to go to the movie, go to the theater for a movie like this, you know, knowing that just to use it as an example, knowing that yesterday you were able to watch Nomadland at home. You know what I mean? Like just uh, look, speaking on our own circumstances, like we, to fancy ourselves critics, but for some reason the you know the the system doesn't recognize us as such, so we don't get passes to screenings, we don't get screeners sent to us, and so we have to make our own way because um, they're scared. But we have to pay for the to go to the movie theater. We have to you know rent these movies streaming. So just in terms of like the ease of seeing as many movies as possible, I'd love to go see the ones I want to see in the theater, but. It's nice to have the option to see them at home, too. And, you know, I think if I had both choices, I would pick and choose because I like seeing movies in the theater. And, you know, I think this might stick around. I, I, I wouldn't mind seeing just like an evolution to it. You know, right now, HBO Max releases these movies for 30 days and then takes them off. Maybe that shrinks to two weeks or something or for a weekend or for, you know, a week or something. And then it's in the theaters for its run and then it hits the typical on-demand schedule. But... I think it's a good system, and I think we've talked about it, that there are certain movies that more people are going to see that even if they don't even if they don't necessarily make as much money as they would have in the theater, maybe it builds a brand for Daniel Kaluuya or Shaka King or you know something that this movie has to do with that finances another movie or whatever. There's a big picture that I hope they're looking at that can work successfully with this model. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. I, I, I would just say that, I, and I, I'm i wondering, you know, I, I, I wonder if like the, your average Netflix subscriber is aware, look, like I said, oh yeah, I wonder, what, you know, is you know patiently waiting for the next Netflix original movie or, um, and I, my, my guess is no, and I don't think people are looking at even, an even newer service in HBO Max in that sense, but like, you know, 
like, and I keep going back to this, but there, there's just a, such a huge sunk cost in releasing a film theatrically, mostly with how much you have to pay to market it. You know, if, you, if we're going to put this movie in 2000 screens or 3000 screens, we got to put $20 million to marketing in this country. And, and that, that is just like one, I think it's a little antiquated, you know, Meanwhile, the, the marketing campaign for Netflix is to just put it on the top of the screen, exactly. which is right. just as successful. Right, right. Or, or right. you get an email that says something you may like from Netflix, and you go, I always click on it. Is it something I'm going to like from Netflix? Yeah. If not, delete. Uh, if so, oh, interesting. Put yeah, and that's free for Netflix to do. Yeah. yeah. Like I right now on the Netflix screen, iCarly, number four in the U.S. today. <laughs> like that's – look at the, the – man – so let's wrap this up so I can go watch this. Oh. Middle school stinks unless you're an internet celebrity with a webcast the whole school is talking about. Uh, so I'm looking at these uh, t- Critics' Choice Award nominees. Uh, ben Affleck, Best Actor. The Way Back? Yeah. He's good in that. I got I think it's his best. I think that's I think you that's add that to the list, career. Lee? Isn't, is that on the list? I don't think Lee, that's if on it's the not list. on the list, we're not going to watch it. So put it on, get it on the list. I think it was on the list, and I probably took it off um, because I don't know that it's. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know. Can't know until you watch it, I guess. Wonder Woman's on the list, and we probably should know. <laughs> yeah, but once it's on the list, it can't come off. Well, that like, I that just, film you know. I care a lot has been top of Netflix for a while. Yeah, I uh, watched that. That was shot uh, shot in Boston. Any good? Mm, I mean, I don't think it's it's okay. It's it's relatively entertaining. It's not a fixie. There's some performances that you never know if you get if you're desperate. Yeah. <laughs> if you get desperate on that, like get that number five slot filled. Uh, a lot of the same locations uh, as uh, Don't Look Up, or a couple of them. I shouldn't say a lot. A couple of them. Interesting. Um, okay, I watched it. I'll get this. I'll so get now, this just add more you. movies to the already yeah. huge list. I hit my 50th movie today. I checked off my 50th movie. All right, we should have wrapped this up. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. We'd like to thank you all for listening. Stay tuned because we are going to be rolling through potential fixie movies. And I think next is going to be Minari, which I believe is going to be available on VOD starting tomorrow. We might have to buy that one, fellas. Um, better be worth the money. Um, yeah, let us know your thoughts. Feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com. Start sending in your voice memos with your thoughts on the 2020 movie year. Love to hear them. Fixies are around the corner. 44 days, guys. Thanks for listening. I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee.